Good morning. Good morning, sir. Good morning. Good morning, sir. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning, sir. Good morning. How are you? Good morning, sir. Good morning. Good morning, sir. Good morning, sir. Good morning. Good morning, sir. Hi there, Steve here. To steal a line from Mel Brooks, it's good to be king. I'll explain that in a minute. In 2000 or so, I left the safe harbor of the corporate world and struck out on my own to form my own company. By that time, I had spent 11 years at Pacific Bell and then 10 years at Hill Associates before setting out on my own. Initially, I taught pretty technical stuff like optical networking, network design, and the inner workings of wireless infrastructures. Over time, as my company grew, that focus gave way to more strategic topics like scenario planning and leadership and sales-oriented programs. Another thing that changed was geography. Initially, I taught pretty much exclusively in the states. New Jersey, California, Florida, North Carolina, Texas, wherever the big tech centers were. And then I added Ottawa and Montreal for the same reason. And then Mexico City and Buenos Aires. Not long after that, demand began to grow in other areas of the world, and pretty soon I was living on airplanes, accumulating about 150,000 air miles or more every year, and traveling to places in Africa, Asia, the Middle East, Europe, and Latin America. There were weeks when I taught in four different countries, weeks when I got up to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night and walked into a wall that wasn't there the night before, different hotel. It was a royal pain. But it was also incredible, a cultural education that was and is priceless. There were all kinds of cultural things that I experienced during my travels, some of it wonderful, some of it disturbing, but all of it interesting and educational. I remember a hotel that I stayed at in Australia that had one of those super fancy Toto toilets, you know, the ones that do pretty much everything but read you a bedtime story. The weird thing was it had a remote control. You know, a wireless remote, like a television set, that operated every function on the toilet. My question was, and still is, because I haven't answered it yet, where are you going to go where you need a remote for the toilet? I mean, I can't think of a single situation where I'd ever be far enough away from a toilet while using it to require a remote. Maybe that's a commentary on my relative level of sophistication, as in my lack thereof. This was a pretty fancy hotel. Okay, let's go back to that opening track. Remember? Good morning, sir. Good morning. Good morning, sir. Good morning. I recorded that years ago on a trip to Shanghai because nobody would believe what happened when I went down to breakfast every day. Between the Mater D's station and my table, a distance of no more than 30 feet, no fewer than 20 people wished me good morning and bowed. Pretty much the same treatment you get in the States when you go out to eat. So this episode's about food. We've all eaten Chinese food and Mexican food and Italian food, except, no, we haven't. Not even close. We've eaten our acceptable interpretation of the foods of those regions. Long ago, I made a deal with myself that if something got put in front of me to eat, then I'd eat it, no matter how weird or disgusting or unrecognizable it might be. There's an old expression that says, the key to eating strange foods in exotic places is that while it doesn't really matter what it is, It's very important to know what it was. But I figure the people who live here are eating it, and they're still standing, so I guess it can't hurt me. 
Now, most of the time, I was surprised by how tasty everything was. Even the really weird things that customers try to get you to eat as sort of a dare, like durian fruit, which tastes like a cross between strawberries and kiwi, but smells like rotting meat. Every once in a while, though, I experience the opposite. For example, in China, they eat a lot of jellyfish. Okay, fine. They put it on the table, so I'll try it. My description? A 100% flavorless chunk of vulcanized rubber. It didn't taste bad, but it was like trying to eat one of those clear silicone bumpers that you put on the back of cabinet doors to keep them from slamming. That was one of those situations where you surreptitiously distract your dining partners by getting them to look over there so that you can take something out of your mouth and dispose of it over here. As it turned out, this was easy. I'd been chewing on this piece of jellyfish for several minutes, and it hadn't changed shape at all. So I just put it back on the plate. As long as we're in China specifically, and Asia in general, here are a few other food adventures for you. Many people have had this experience in China. You go out to dinner at an authentic Chinese restaurant, usually with a group of older men. They ask if you would like to try traditional Chinese food. Of course, you say yes. Within minutes of hearing the rapid-fire order from the table, the waiter's back holding a very pissed-off snake, five feet long, pissed off because it knows what's coming. With much flourish, the waiter places a cutting board on the table, holds down the snake, and with a cleaver, removes the dangerous end, which quickly calms down the snake. The waiter then drains the snake's blood into a glass, and the glass is passed around the table with the explanation that it is good for man. Everybody has a sip. Then the snake is skinned and fried. Stringy chicken. Another time, I ate at a fancy restaurant in Shanghai, which sat out on an island in the middle of a lake in what looked like a big city park. It was really beautiful. There were about 10 of us all together, and we all sat around this table that had this giant sort of lazy Susan in the middle, which they just filled with incredibly delicious food. Course after course after course made it to the groaning board, each one of them more delicious and exotic than the last. Nothing weird, just intricate, not always recognizable, but absolutely delicious. But then, weirdness. One of the delicacies in China is fresh steamed river carp. It's really good. It's a delicate white meat fish, kind of like tilapia, and they're big. They're really big fish. This fish was somewhere between two and three feet long. They placed it in the middle of the turntable on our table, and the idea was that you turned the Lazy Susan, and as the fish went by slowly, you'd just use your chopsticks to pick off a piece of the delicate fish. But here's the thing. To prove to us how fresh it was, they only steamed the body of the fish. The tail and the head were left alone, so while I am absolutely sure the fish was dead, nobody told the fish, because the whole time its mouth was opening and closing, and its tail was slowly moving back and forth. I'm sure it was tasty, but I stuck to the noodles. On another trip, we were in Beijing with a client from the U.S. This particular client hadn't traveled very much in his career, and most of his travels were to places where the food was pretty traditional. About halfway through the week, I ran into him in the lobby of the Cary Center Hotel where we were staying. He jokingly grabbed me by the lapels and said to me, If I have to eat one more meal that's looking at me, I'm going to hurt somebody. Can we please find something to eat tonight that I'll recognize? So I went over to the concierge and explained, trying to be culturally sensitive. My colleague and I have enjoyed the wonderful food here every night, but tonight we'd like to try something a bit more Western. 
Would you have a recommendation? Well, he instantly got it. Oh, yes, he said, in perfect but heavily accented English. And I'm going to butcher what he sounded like, but here's my best attempt. Great Western restaurant, Chinese but very good, called Outback. So he took what is often called a dumb gaijin card, which is sort of a business card that gets handed to taxi drivers. It says, I don't speak your language, as if that wasn't already obvious, so please take me to whatever he wrote on the back. And then on the front, it says, I'm staying at the Cary Center Hotel. Please take me there. It's sort of like one of those lost animal tags that dogs wear. By the way, gaijin is a Japanese phrase made up of two kanji characters that mean outside and person. But the term is used pretty universally to mean what we used to call in West Texas a foreigner. Well, we hopped in a cab and the driver took us to Outback and folks, it was Outback. Same outfit, same bling, same decor, everything except for the meat. Our customer ordered prime rib. When it arrived at the table, we're talking blind butcher with a chainsaw. I'm sure it came from a cow, but whatever, it tasted good and the customer was happy. Next, we hop over to Japan, a country that I can only describe as surreal. One evening, we went for a walk before dinner. We wandered into a fruit shop near Shibuya Crossing, where we found that two cantaloupes cost 21,000 yen. That's $200. Those must be some seriously good melons. Anyway, after dinner, we went to a Mexican restaurant that came highly recommended by our in-country hosts. I liked the name of the place so much that I begged the owner to sell me the little decorative clay cup on our table that had the name of the restaurant glazed on it. You ready? Casa de Fujimori. It sits proudly over there on my desk of travel curios. On that same trip, we were taken by our hosts to eat at the newly opened Rainforest Cafe that's out on the way to Disneyland. My good friend Gary and I ordered burgers, which arrived hot, fresh, and really tasty with mountains of French fries and all the trimmings. But there was something slightly off about the burger. It wasn't bad. It was just different. So we asked why it tasted slightly sweet. Horse meat. Another time, we were there with a different client, and before we went for dinner, the three of us decided to take a walk through this beautiful residential neighborhood near our hotel in Ebisu. The streets were quiet, overgrown, with leafy flowering trees, and the houses were small, neat, traditional. Then we came around a corner, and there in front of us was the most incongruous-looking place. It was a bar called the Brown Jug. It didn't fit in this neighborhood. It had a smoked glass sunroom that stuck out in front of it, so we popped in to check it out. It turned out to be a bar that only played Gershwin music and only served single malt scotch. So we sat down for a drink before dinner. As we waited for the waiter to come over, we watched in awe as the bartender took a big chunk of ice and, using an ice pick, converted it into a perfect sphere in a matter of a minute or so. It was amazing. He dropped it in a glass and then poured scotch over it. One of the coolest things I had ever seen at the time. So our client said to me, Steve, we're here together in Tokyo. Let's celebrate. You're the scotch drinker. Let's do a tasting. Now, I demurred explaining that Scotch is really expensive in Japan and that maybe we should just have one drink and then go find dinner. He refused, saying he was picking up the tab, that he was the customer, and that he wanted to do this. So when the waiter came over, I explained that we wanted a taste of a variety of scotches. For each of us, I ordered a lighter whiskey like Glenlivet, 
and then a medium smoky scotch like Talisker, and then a really smoky single malt, which I think was probably Lagavulin or Laphroaig or something like that. We sat there for an hour or so listening to Gershwin, finally decided to go off in search of a restaurant. Our customer asked for the bill, and when it arrived, he choked. $600. We offered to make it go away, but no, he promised, so he paid it. We left the restaurant, and Gary asked him what he'd like to eat. He said that he'd heard a lot about this thing called Kobe beef, and that he'd like to try that. We told him that that was probably the single most expensive thing you can buy in Japan to eat, more expensive than cantaloupes, but he insisted, so off we went. Kobe beef is pretty amazing. The cows from which it is removed are supposedly fed the best grains and rice, and they drink beer every day. They're also massaged constantly by their human owners to help distribute the fat throughout the meat, whatever. All I know is that they sat us down around a circular table that had a fire pit in the middle of it and placed in front of each of us plate after plate of raw beef, which we cooked ourselves over the fire. It was seriously good, not $2,000 good, which I recall the bill being somewhere north of, but it was good. Now let's head over to Seoul, South Korea, which we were visiting with yet another customer who had not traveled much internationally. Great city, really nice people, kind of exotic. Our in-country host greeted us by inviting us out to a massive multi-course dinner to celebrate our visit. It was stupendous, course after course after course of exotic, delicious food. Before we sat down, though, Gary, who had lived in Korea for a while, warned the client, you can eat everything they put in front of you with one exception. Do not eat the kimchi. They make it by burying it in the dirt until it ferments, after which they pickle it. What that means is that kimchi has bacteria that haven't even been named yet. And while the local people's stomachs are accustomed to it, yours is not, so don't eat the kimchi. Well, we sat down and began to stuff ourselves as course after course arrived, each one better than the last. This went on for hours. At one point, Gary elbowed me and pointed to our customer. Looking down the table, I saw him shoveling kimchi into his mouth as fast as he could. Well, the next day, Gary and I had to teach. At lunchtime, our country host asked us to join him at a restaurant across the street for fugu. For those of you who don't know, fugu is blowfish. The thing about blowfish is that the fish's liver is toxic, as in drop you dead in your tracks, toxic, seconds after eating it. But they also know that a very skilled chef can shave off a tiny portion of the liver when he prepares the fish, and it will include just enough of the toxin to make the diner's lips numb. Well, it worked, except that apparently my lips extended down to the middle of my chest because I felt as if I had been given the world's largest dose of Novocaine. I couldn't feel my face, and my mouth wouldn't work. That was the case until about four in the afternoon. All I could do was make weird, unintelligible sounds, so I gave the class a case study to work on. By the way, our client, he of the kimchi, well, weeks later, he was finally well enough to be transported home. He lost about half of his body weight. Don't eat the kimchi. Before we leave Asia, we have to make a brief stop in Thailand. Now, Thailand's one of my favorite places on earth. Truly exotic, incredibly beautiful, the most gentle, kind people on the planet, elephants everywhere, floating markets in the Chao Phraya River, and some of the best food I've ever eaten anywhere on earth. Well, 
I was there one time and we were trying to make our way from our hotel in Bangkok to a different hotel on the other side of town where a dinner was taking place that we were supposed to attend and that I was supposed to keynote. I was there with a client. Now, those of you who think you've been in heavy gridlock traffic have never been to Bangkok. There was no way a car would get us there in time. So we hopped on a tuk-tuk, which is one of those little three-wheel things, right? Because we thought this little vehicle could hopefully make its way through traffic more easily than a full-size car. But nope, we got within a few blocks and everything came to a full stop. So we paid the driver and decided to walk the rest of the way. Now, after about a block, my colleague stopped, stuck his nose in the air and said to me, oh man, I am starving and that smells incredible. He began to follow his nose toward the source of the smell. I ran behind him and reached him about the time he got to the giant walk on top of the oil drum in which an elderly woman was preparing food. Don't even think about it, I told him. It's not a good idea to eat street food here. But he insisted. Oh, come on, it's cooking and boiling oil. How bad could it be? So I walked over and looked in the walk and I said to him, chances are very good that that oil has been boiling in there since before you were born. And then I looked in again and I said, and by the way, those are crickets. Now, you can stay and munch all you want, but I'm going to go to the hotel and eat peanuts in the bar. He couldn't get away from the walk fast enough, but the peanuts were divine. Okay, I don't want you to think that Asia has a monopoly on exotic food, so let's wander back across the Pacific to Latin America. Because of my Spanish, I have a lot of customers in the region and teach down there and give speeches and keynotes fairly often. I love Latin America for all kinds of reasons, especially Mexico. Some of it has to do with the cultural mix of Aztec and Maya and Spanish. Some of it's the food and the people, they just don't come any better. So one day, a customer down there snagged me after class and invited me to dinner. We went to a famous restaurant in the city near the Zocalo, which is the big central plaza. The restaurant's called La Opera. The place is famous for two things. The fact that they have a couple of hundred different tequilas on the back bar, who knew that there were that many, and the fact that there's a bullet hole in the ceiling surrounded by a picture frame that was put there by Pancho Villa during a particularly drunken night. Anyway, we ordered drinks, the first of what turned out to be too many, and when the waiter brought them, my host asked if I liked guacamole, explaining that this place had the best in town. I agreed, by the way. Then he asked if I liked it with or without chapulines. Well, I had no idea what chapulines were, so I figured, well, it's got to be a local name from one of the many goodies that go into guacamole. So I said, absolutely. Well, away the waiter went, returning with a big, delicious bowl of perfectly seasoned guac, surrounded by fresh-from-the-oil chips, with the added deliciousness of crickets fried in lime and garlic mixed liberally into the guac. Whatever. The tequila took care of any trepidation I had about ordering a second bowl. On another visit south of the border... We went to a taqueria where I was pretty much commanded to order tacos made from escamoles. I agreed. When they arrived, I peeked inside where I found rice, slices of hot pepper, and avocado. I squeezed lime on them as I was directed to do, and they were spectacularly delicious, except it wasn't rice. Escamoles are ant larvae. They cost a fortune, and I've ordered them every time I've gone down there since. One of my good friends in Mexico lives in the city, but he has a weekend home, kind of a family home in a town about an hour south. The town's called Cuernavaca. On one trip, I was doing some consulting for his company, which required me to be down there for a couple of weeks. Instead of staying in the downtown hotel, he invited me to come spend the weekend with him and his family in Cuernavaca. So off we went. 
When we got there, I was surprised that his mom was also there and had prepared the most unbelievable Mexican feast I had ever eaten in my entire life. As things were cooking, she pulled a small plastic bag from her apron pocket, reached in, extracted what looked like a black bean, and ate it. I asked what they were. She said, cumiles. She offered me one, and before I could correct course, I reached into the bag to grab one of these little beans. Except they weren't little beans, because one of them began to crawl up my arm. They were stink bugs, another local delicacy. So before I had time to think about it, I popped it into my mouth and chewed. Cumin, cinnamon, anise. Actually really good, but no, I'll stick to sunflower seeds. Now before we wander over to Europe, let's make a quick stop in Africa. It's funny, as exotic as Africa is in the minds of most of us, the food, frankly, isn't all that crazy. I mean, yeah, they eat air-dried game called biltong, which is their answer to jerky, and it's common to have ostrich or kudu or gazelle on the menu. But the strangest thing I can tell you about African cuisine, and I've eaten a lot of it, is that veggies and fruit are merely a suggestion. When I stay down there and go to breakfast over the weekend at somebody's house, a typical plate has, no joke, six eggs, six pieces of bacon, and six sausages on it. And if you're lucky, a piece of toast. Of course, there are the exotic things. A Zulu favorite is mopane worms, big fat caterpillars cooked over a fire. Not much flavor, not much texture, just kind of blah. Okay, off to Europe. When we moved overseas from West Texas, we had to get accustomed to a few foods that just weren't on the menu back home. Things like barnacles, blood sausage, baby eels cooked in hot olive oil and garlic. A lot like linguine, except the noodles are looking at you. But there was one culinary experience that changed me forever. It happened shortly after we moved to Madrid. My parents rented a house in a little village a few miles west of downtown Madrid, a little pueblo called Aravaca. Now, to call it a house was a gross understatement. It was a house in the same way that Costco is a shop. The alternative was a crowded apartment downtown, and my mom wasn't about to do that with three rambunctious boys. So my parents rented the only house they could find. It had nine bedrooms, five bathrooms, a beautiful garden with a pool, a central courtyard, two kitchens, and Loli. Loli worked for the family that preceded us in the house. They called her their maid, but that wasn't what she was. She saved us. When we rented the house, it was just assumed that she was part of the package, and thankfully she was. That was 50 years ago. I still see Loli every time I go to Spain on business. She's a few years older than I am and as much a part of my family as my parents and brothers are. She's my sister. She lived with us. She taught my mom the ins and outs of shopping and negotiating. She was kind of our secret weapon. One winter day, uh, Loli invited us to join her at her parents' house for coffee and dessert. This was not long after we moved there. Her parents lived in an even tinier town beyond ours called Majadahonda, a scrubby little pueblo that looked like a Star Wars outpost. No paved streets, cattle and sheep running around, ancient Spanish women dressed all in black, the sign of a lost husband. Light snow was falling. It was December, and it was very cold. We parked the car and climbed a half-completed brick staircase on the outside of an equally incomplete building that led to their home. It comprised two rooms, a kitchen and dining room about 10 feet on a side, and a bedroom and bath about the same size. In the center of the kitchen was a small round table with a heavy felt tablecloth that reached all the way to the floor. Under the table was a metal brazier filled with burning coal. This was what heated the house. We were instructed to sit at the table 
and wrap the tablecloth around our legs to trap the heat. My prejudices began to surface. I felt them rise like a tide. These people were so poor, they had nothing. The only things hanging on their bare whitewashed walls were a large crucifix and a slightly crooked photo of Generalissimo Franco. I felt embarrassed, awkward, out of place. I didn't know how to be. Well, we spoke enough Spanish to have a slow, pretty awkward conversation with our hosts, but most of what we exchanged were smiles and hand gestures and a tremendous amount of laughter. I had no idea what they were talking about most of the time, but I don't think I've ever in my life had a more fun day. These people were poor, they spoke no English, but they were kind, and they were unbelievably inclusive. Pretty soon, neighbors began to arrive because they wanted to meet us, and with them a cornucopia of food. An entire serrano ham came through the door, the entire leg of a pig, air-cured, strongly flavored, delicious. Strings of chorizo and lomo and morcilla and salchichon sausages rich with paprika and garlic and savory fat. Bowls of fried and marinated anchovies, olives and peppers, mushrooms sautéed in olive oil and garlic, bags of French bread torn apart to soak up the leavings on the plate, and a universe of cheeses from all corners of Spain. We ate until we were full, and then we ate some more. Desserts arrived, mysterious and unknown and incredibly tasty, and then the music started. Spain is a musical country. Spaniards are wired with arpeggios, 16th notes flow through their veins, and their hearts beat like a flamenco dancer's shoes. And so it was that spontaneous singing began to break out. One person would begin to wail that sad, lonely sound that makes me think of foghorns and that is completely unique to Spanish love songs. And everyone else would join in, clapping in syncopated rhythm as the music progressed. As each song approached its final chorus, a voice would begin a different song, and the group would switch over seamlessly. I didn't understand the words, but the music, the rhythm, the emotion, they spoke to me. I was entranced. And all that food, well, that was a bonus. But I think it was that food-centric afternoon that cemented my love affair with Spain. Now, other parts of Europe have their own magical foods, of course. People make fun of food in the UK, but it's incredibly tasty. In Denmark, you'll feel like you're in a scene out of Forrest Gump, but instead of a hundred ways to cook shrimp, it's all herring all the time. And so it goes. One year, my friend Gary Martin and I were in Munich, doing work for the same client that had taken us to Asia a few years before. We asked for a recommendation for dinner, and they sent us to this little place around the corner that turned out to be blow-your-skull-off-delicious. Bavarian food at its best, which means dumplings the size of softballs and thick brown gravy ladled heavily on everything. It was a little place, so it was kind of farmhouse seating. They put you wherever they had space. There were six of us in our group, and they put us at a table for eight. Well, a couple came in for dinner, and since we had two empty seats, they put them at our table. They were Americans from Louisiana, which I'm sure was another reason they seated them with us. But it just so happened that at the moment they arrived at our table, I was in the process of ordering for everybody in German, and that's what they heard when they sat down. 
So they naturally assumed we were German. If they knew how bad my German was, they would have been less concerned. But anyway, they just sat there kind of awkwardly giving each other sideways looks. When I finished, the table fell silent. And then Gary, who was sitting next to the husband of this couple, leaned over and in his best New Jersey accent, he said, how y'all doing? Well, that was a hugely funny moment, as you can imagine. You could see the relief just wash over him. So we got into the typical what-do-you-do conversation. And when I asked the guy what he did, he said, well, we have a turkey smoker. And I said, wow, so do I. I love it. It has three shelves, so I can smoke a turkey and a chicken and a brisket all at once. Is that kind of like what you have? And he smiled and said, well, sort of, except our smoker holds 600 turkeys. Well, then his wife chimed in and told us that they also have a huge pond on their property, and they raise crawfish, what they call mud bugs in the South. She told us that they dredge them out of the pond every couple of weeks with big nets. They typically get about 500 pounds each time. They then boil them and smoke them and ship them all over the world. I just love how food leads to some of the most interesting adventures and conversations I've ever had, and it has given me the opportunity to meet people and immerse myself in their culture over a plate of food. It just doesn't get any better than that. Now, I could go on and tell you about eating kangaroo loin and wombat stew in Australia or about the dinner in Warsaw with clients that lasted for hours and consisted of bowls of chicken fat, dark bread to dip in it, and endlessly filled glasses of chilled vodka. Important safety tip, Egon, don't drink with the Poles. Or for that matter, with the Irish. I taught a program in Dublin a couple of years ago, and the client told me that on Friday, the last day of class, they were going to bring in a nice lunch for everybody to celebrate the end of the week. That was on Thursday afternoon. But on Friday morning, she pulled me aside and told me that they weren't going to do the lunch thing. Instead, she said, I've arranged a private tour of the Jameson factory. Well, okay, it was a great tour, but at every stop of the tour, they put a shot of Irish whiskey in our hands, and these were full pours. And remember, we haven't had lunch yet. I'm pretty sure we did eventually, but I'm not sure. Or I can tell you about stopping at a restaurant in Croatia with Sabina years ago on our way from Venice to Zagreb. They handed us this enormous menu. It had to be 10 pages long, filled with incredible-sounding entrees. We were starving, so when they came to take our order, our server asked us if we were ready to eat. We said that we were, and she said, Great. How about meat, potatoes, and salad? Because, you see, that was all they had. This was in the early 80s. Yugoslavia had ceased to exist just a few years before, and the country's economy just wasn't there. So meat, potatoes, and salad, and it was good. Road food, nothing like it, especially the people and experiences that come with it. Hey, thanks for dropping by. I'm Steve Shepard, the host of the Natural Curiosity Project, where we're committed to the idea that curiosity leads to discovery, discovery leads to knowledge, knowledge leads to insight, and insight leads to understanding. In every episode, we explore some topic that piqued our curiosity enough to make us want to share it with you. I hope you enjoy the journey. And if you did, I'd appreciate it if you'd leave a comment over at iTunes or SoundCloud, wherever you listen to the podcast. Thank you very much. We'll see you in the next episode. Thank you.